Hi, everybody, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Compliant with Alliant. I don't, this is somewhat COVID related, marginally COVID related, but we're going to talk today about premium credits and rebates, which we're seeing in, um, fairly commonly from insurance carriers and even third party administrators. So, Diane's with me today. Hello, everyone. And we'll run through this pretty quickly, but um, anytime something practical you know, happens like this where there's an action item, we want to make sure that you understand what the rules of the road are. So um, I'm going to run you through, let's see, let's talk about first the fact that these are not old rules. So kind of a good news, bad news thing. The good news, these are not new rules, the ones that we're going to be working with. They even predate you know, what we generally know about rebates, which is medical loss ratio. Um, those of you in this space have, have been working with that for a while. Um, the rules that we're gonna talk through here with rebates and credits are predate those rules. Um, the bad news is that the rebates and credits are arising from these pandemic-related circumstances and so it feels a little bit different. Things feel a little bit uncertain. So I want to talk through some semantics, yeah? Yeah, and I think the thing that is interesting, again, this was one of the earliest issues I dealt with when I went into uh, ERISA consulting and compliance consulting because it was coming up in just all sorts of contexts, whether it was you know pharmacy rebates or um, was it demutualizations, Chris? Yeah, that was my first big issue when I started doing this work too. Is the life insurance were, de- you know, they were the companies were demutualizing, and so policyholders and plan participants had a bucket of money. But it just feels so different right now because there's this weird flood, and like my car insurer just gave me a fifteen percent credit on my car insurance premium, and apparently that's happening with dental, with vision, um, mm-hmm. even at some ASO contracts on administrative fees. Exactly, and so when. When you're generating a rebate in cash in hand um, that implicates plan assets, we have some things to talk about. So before we get there, we want to talk about semantics, rebates versus credits. Rebates are what we are calling cash in hand. So it's a refund of an amount you have already paid. MLR rebates are one kind of rebate, but not the only, right? And then a credit, a mid-year credit against an established amount that's due or owed, also cash in hand. And the reason why we want to talk to you about that is because okay, employer, plan sponsor, here's a bucket of money, and now you have to do something. And so the question really needs to be, how much of this can I keep, and what do I need to give to my plan participants and use toward the plan, because ERISA tells me that I have to do that. So um, let's talk through a little bit about that, Diana. Yeah, I mean, and just to make a a fine point on a credit against an established amount that's due, that is the same thing as cash in hand. If you owed somebody per contract, 10 grand and they say no now you only owe us five you've got cash in hand that's, that's five right. it's 5, not like you're not sneaking around the office not telling anybody <laughs> that you know you have this cash in hand and also too it's different from let's just say at the at renewal the carrier says okay experience was x you, you know you're going to get a you're going to get a break you're going to you know you're going to get a decrease that's a different thing altogether right then you just make adjustments accordingly but this is here you go Here's your cash in your hand, and now it's go time. What do you do with it? Yeah, and so when we look at those, you know, really any rebate or a mid-year credit, the first question we have to ask is, does it include plan assets? And the answer is almost always yes, because participant contributions are always plan assets. So if you have a plan with cost share, which is 99% of the time, you have plan assets there. Um, Sometimes the employer pays 100% of the premium. If that's the case, there are no plan assets. Um, in the rare, but rarely, right? Yeah, they're, they're usually cost sharing on some tier. 
almost right. always. I mean, it, it's just incre- and then also incredibly rare is if you are paying premiums from a trust, mm-hmm. then the entire amount that comes back as plan assets. That's just by virtue of that trust vehicle. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so. Once you've identified that you have plan assets, you need to figure out how much of it is plan asset. And, you know, we are attorneys and notoriously bad at math, um, but we can figure this out. You know, it's just a percentage. Yeah, on most days I can do this math. (laughs) Although when we were drafting up some of this stuff, she was doing some very bad math, I have to say. (laughs) I am not known for my math skills. But really, we are looking at just figuring out uh, what percentage is plan assets based on cost sharing. So the amount the employee pays versus the amount the employer pays. This can be easy if it's, gee, we have a 60-40 employer-employee split, which means like I get 10000 back from a carrier. The employer paid 60%. Uh, the employee paid 40%. We can do that math. What percent or what amount is plan assets? $4,000 is plan assets. She, I win. She did the math. Yeah. But it can get more complicated. It usually does. Yeah, and so sometimes we see plans with, I mean, any number of tiers. You know, you can have employee plus child, employee plus spouse, employee plus family, employee plus three kids, four kids, five. You know, it just can go. And then you're really splitting hairs there, right? Yeah, and what we can do in that situation, because that gets overwhelming, even for non-lawyers, um, is just instead look at the buckets. You can take total employer dollars that went towards this elaborately structured, let's say, dental benefit, and total employee dollars that, again, went to the elaborately structured (laughs) dental benefit, and then just make a percentage out of that. So that's a sort of simpler way you can go forward. Okay, so now that we know... We know we have plan assets. We know in what percentage. What can we do with it now that we've identified how much of it needs to go back to the plan? And ERISA really drives this for those plans. And and by the way, public sector plans, you aren't out of the scope here. You have the same parallel rules. Um, But you have to use it for the exclusive benefit of the participants and consistent with fiduciary duties, which is all really nice and well. But what does that mean specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think when we look at um, what does the exclusive benefit rule mean, uh, you're using plan assets to benefit participants. We're talking about using them to reduce costs or enhance benefits. Um, And again, we just we want to come back to this point where this does not need to be a to the penny uniform allocation of a credit based on the fact that, you know, Joe Smith had five kids covered and Susie Jones only had four. Um, you can, you have a, a decent amount of flexibility under ERISA here. You could um, maybe use it to say address if you've had terrible cost sharing for dependents, you could use it to address that. If you can't um, figure out the allocation based on tiers of enrollment, you could apply it at the employee only tier. Yeah. When we talk about fiduciary rules, they're talking about applying a, a creditor rebate on a uniform, reasonable, and consistent basis. We do not take plan assets and use them to give our executives a premium holiday. It's kind of a smell test. Oh, my gosh. It, it really should be common sense rules, but I've been asked some questions that are... Yes. Uh, once, I mean, this is many, many years ago, I got asked if we could uh, use plan assets to send executives on expensive vacations. <laughs> 
It's like, did they plant that question without a real question? But another one I've gotten was, would, could we take plant assets and donate them to charity? And which is a nice idea, but no is the answer. To no that. is the answer. And that brings us back to our ERISA rules. We can wrap and bundle plants, yeah. which we recommend all of our groups do. So you have one ERISA plan or maybe two or something, but you've made a mindful choice there and you've wrapped your plans. And when you've wrapped plans, you can actually use plan assets to benefit any bundled or wrapped benefit. And we've seen this through private letter rulings where you you had, let's say, um, a dental rebate and you used it to enhance a vision plan. Um, Or let's say, uh, historically, we used to use rebates and credits sometimes to fund wellness plans that are providing medical care. Um, But we want to talk, too, about just, um, well, Krista, you want to handle your rule that you've nicknamed? Oh, the hot potato rule? Yeah. I'll, oh, this, yeah. But uh, before that, we want to let them know, too, that they don't have to locate past participants or oh. give a premium holiday to Cobra QBs. Oh, thank you so much, yeah. Chris. Because, again, with Cobra QBs, you know, we have a, a fixed Cobra premium that is determined under very formal rules, and nothing here obviates those rules. Okay, so one of the key rules here in rebates and credits is, I call it the hot potato rule. Diana, in her you know technical knowledge, calls it the 9201 rule, which is actually the technical release number. I just had to tell her. I don't think she knows that I know it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but your plan assets, you cannot hold plan assets for more than 90 days. And actually, we're doing a Glory Days episode today, but that was my first big thing was I we had a group with like $50,000 of a rebate, a demutualization rebate that has just been sitting there for years. So that's how I know this is a problem. I, I do know that's a problem so, too, Chris. Uh, <laughs> so you cannot hold that for more than 90 days outside of a trust, right? This is why this is the 9201 is why you don't have to hold your plan assets in a trust, why you get to send them off to the carriers, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so you want to make sure that that is informing your choices. Um, and... Let's see, what else do I want to hit here? So, for instance, an example is you cannot get a cream, uh, a, a rebate or a credit in June and then just roll it forward till next year's cost sharing because you've held it for longer than 90 days. But historically, a lot of these came up in kind of weird year-end, here's a bucket of money. Um, and I think my earliest memory of those were like pharma rebates. Mm-hmm. And then if it's kind of towards year-end, yes, yes, you, you, you can. can. Yeah, so it just depends on timing. Watch that 90-day rule, the now infamous hot potato rule. And yeah, some other things to think about is if you're creating benefits enhancements, which again, we don't see that a ton. Not, these, yeah, not mid-year. But it's permissible. Um, if you're creating a big benefit enhancement in the middle of the year, that could generate a Section 125 event um, to allow people to pop onto the plan. So you'll want to think about that. Yeah, and it, but if you are within that 90-day uh, limit and you want to do an enhancement in a subsequent year, you could. Yeah, exactly. Like if that comes back to you in November, you know, you can do that. Oh, can I just hit taxation really quickly? Sure. Because you know how I I love love talking about taxation. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been asked a couple of times um, when we get this, you know, credit rebate, we split it on plan asset lines. Um, When we give it back to participants and beneficiaries, is it taxable to them? Well, and yeah, if you're writing them a check, you know, that's always going to be taxable to them. When you do a premium holiday, we just want to think about mechanics there. So, you know, employees' salary reduce a certain amount to pay for a benefit. If you give them a a partial or full premium holiday for a month or so, they're salary reducing less on a pre-tax basis and have more taxable income. So, yeah, in a roundabout way, that does increase their taxable income. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Okay. So, I don't know that we want to... 
don't know that we need. Do you want to hit this? I'm going to hit it just okay. in a sound bite. Sometimes documents say employers can choose to just keep the whole rebate. Um, no, please don't keep the whole rebate. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. There's, a, I mean, that's a, like a trust-related rule. It's a vestige of, you know, flexibility in the plan. And um, just because your plan document says it, because some of them do, doesn't mean you should. Yeah, and those are kind of like old organic things that can be left in a plan document. But they're, they're not obviating these rules. You're going to do the same thing we've told you to do. Yep. And, again, plans that are not subject to ERISA, um, have some additional flexibility, but really are subject to the same general fiduciary principles. And um, we highly recommend, you know, that you you proceed as as recommended under ERISA as well. And, you know, to the extent that it's possible and feasible, a premium holiday is always sort of just the easiest way to do this. I want to go real quickly through MLR. I don't want to hit it in detail, but I do want to make a note about some confusion, I think, in the marketplace. Yeah, and I think part of the confusion we've seen is that not everybody is as old as dinosaurs like Chris and I. So sometimes your first exposure to rebates was through MLR rebates, and those are different rules. They are a a statutory creation that came out of the Affordable Care Act. They started back in 2011, Um, and again, it's this percentage that large and small group plans must put towards coverage and, um, you know, basically administering the plan. Yeah, and, and, and largely emulate the ERISA rules we just went through, but they have some additional restrictions on them, and again, I don't I don't know that I want to go down this rabbit hole oh, right now. The but. only point that is actually relevant here is that the MLR rebate rules yes. state that you must apply the plan asset portion of the rebate to the benefit option that generated the rebate. Um, and again, you can apply it to current participants or even future participants who re-enroll. We do have a rule where if the rebate is comically large, comically large, you may have a fiduciary obligation to do sort of a pay and chase of participants who were enrolled in the plan Mm -hmm. for the year that generated the rebate. And so to that end, um, I think it's important to talk about dates. And so MLR rebates, the data for that is reported by July, end of July 31, and then rebates are paid by September 30th. So the rebates that you may see this year relate to last year's experience. And this has been killing me because I've seen about three articles that said, your September 30th rebate is going to be huge this year because of the decrease in medical utilization due to COVID-19. And that is not the case. Well, yeah, and unless unless there's something we don't know or haven't seen. <laughs> um, and so, but what I would say is, to the extent that that utilization this year might impact next year's MLR rebate. Reminder, this is only for you fully insured medical plans. Um, You may want to keep special track of who is enrolled in that particular plan this year in the event that they are large and you do have to track them down. And so those are the basics on rebates and credits. Just remember sort of the semantics. A rebate and a credit is a cash in hand and you you got a hot potato and you got to do something with it and you have to figure out Um, how much and to where, and um, there's probably more flexibility than you think, um, but not that much. (laughs) How's that for equivocal? Um, So I think we have have a a training deck on this, and, um, you know, if you have questions, you know, I think, probably where to find us. Thank you.